At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Diversion Podcasts. We walked into the court at the palestra. We first walked in the gym. We saw all them people outside waiting for tickets. I got, I got chills because it's thrilling to know that you came such a long way and people are all here to, to watch you play and watch you show your skills. It gave me a lot of adrenaline, but I, I can't really think about it. I just had to calm myself down because if I came out with too much energy, then I'd be messing up, like turning the ball, shooting the air balls, and, and things like that. At the intersection of 33rd and South Streets in West Philadelphia, on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania, stands a rectangular brick building that is one of the most famous and revered sports arenas in the world. It's the building that Kobe Bryant was talking about in that tape you just heard. The building is called the Palestra. It was named, appropriately, by a professor who taught Greek. It opened 94 years ago, and depending on what religious terminology you prefer, it is usually referred to as the cathedral, or the temple, or the mecca of college basketball, and especially of Philadelphia basketball. Actually, by the standards of modern sports arenas, the palestra is pretty tiny. It holds fewer than 10,000 spectators, 8,722 to be exact. That's regarded as a magical and unforgettable number in Philly hoops. Because the palestra is so small, because everyone's on top of each other, the building can get humid, and it can get loud. It's an electric place to see a game. It's the home of the Penn Quakers. It's the home of Philadelphia's Big Five. All of them Division I basketball teams in or around the city with storied local rivalries. Penn, Villanova, Temple, St. Joseph's, and LaSalle. This tape from a 1987 matchup between Temple and St. Joe's paints a vivid image of the heat and energized crowd at the Palestra could generate. Again, you're looking live at the Palestra. A freezing rain has been falling all day outside in Philadelphia, but, but they may not need any money for street maintenance. There may be enough heat generated right here in the Palestra today to melt all the ice in Philadelphia. These two ball clubs are ready to get after one another. Again, Temple coming in 5-0 in the Atlantic 10. St. Joseph's at 4-1, so it's a battle for the top spot in the league race as we reach the midway point of the season. They are jammed in here. They remodeled the Palestra this year. It now seats 87 and I don't think there's an empty seat in the place. The Palestra became a very special place for Kobe, and we'll get into why it was so special to him in later episodes. But the Bryant family's connection to the Palestra actually started a generation before Kobe. It started with Kobe's dad, Joe. I'm Mike Sealski, and from Diversion Podcasts, this is I Am Kobe. Yourself. 
nice, go hard, create yourself. Gotta learn from the great minds. No, we ain't lying. Tell them that's game time. Episode 2, The Bryant Family Legacy. If you want to get to the heart of the Kobe Bryant story, you have to start with the Joe Bryant story. And that means you have to start in the city where Joe grew up, Philadelphia. One of the pieces of Kobe's story that tends to get glossed over is that his dad also played in the NBA. It's treated as trivia. It's true, Joe Bryant spent eight years in the league. But throwing out that fact and then moving on doesn't capture the full picture of Joe's career. Because long before Kobe Bryant was a high school legend around Philadelphia, Joe Bryant was a high school legend in Philadelphia. And his legend was every bit as grand as his son's. We always thought that Joe was, um, he was a one-off, right? He was a 6'9 guy who could dribble and shoot it and um, pass. That's Mo Howard. He and Joe have been friends for years. They've known each other since high school when they were maybe the two best teenage basketball players in Philadelphia. Mo went on to play college ball at Maryland and have a brief career in the NBA. We always thought, like, as we got older, we would compare JB to sort of like Magic Johnson, right? Because at that time, big guys played near the basket. But Joe had a very unique skill set because, again... He was 6'9", was a very, very proficient dribbler and passer, and he could shoot the ball. So he was he was extraordinary as a high school player because there were not many 6'9 guys like him. To learn the full story of Kobe Bryant's father, you can't just pop the name Joe Bryant into Google and then wait half a second for the internet to spit some links and posts at you. You have to do what I did one day during the summer of 2020. You have to go to the library at Temple University in North Philadelphia. In its urban archives, the library has hundreds of articles from the Philadelphia Bulletin, which back in the 1960s and 70s had the largest circulation of any afternoon daily newspaper in the country. The library had these newspaper clippings in tiny manila envelopes, and they were yellowed and fading and brittle. I had to handle them gently because I was afraid they would fall apart in my hands. But in those clippings were details that showed just how much Joe and Kobe had in common. There was some foreshadowing there, some connections and similarities, if you were willing to look hard enough. I, I, I thought Kobe was, was a little more... Uh hard than Joe. Joe was more of, of, of a smiling kind of, kind of basketball player. This is Julius Thompson. He writes amazing novels about basketball and basketball players now, but he started out as a sports writer. He spent 10 years covering high school sports at the Philadelphia Bulletin in the 1970s and 80s, which means he covered Joe Bryant's entire career at Bartram High School in Southwest Philadelphia. I can see the one thing, the agility and the quickness and the size. Now, I don't recall I told Kobe well, but Joe, Joe's 6'10". I know that. He was, he was close to 6'10". Kobe made a little smaller. But you can see the same talent. You can see the same want to be excellent. You can see the same quickness. 
and you can see the same move. So, so sometimes I watch Kobe, I could almost see Joe, a little shorter version of Joe on the on on the on the court. Um, shoot, they can way shoot shoot can shoot it from, go to the basket hard, uh, play strong when he had to. And one thing I people realize determination. That's the thing, I think, and that, that, that willingness to be the best. And I saw that in both. Philadelphia has had its share of young hoops phenoms, of course. Before he scored 100 points in one NBA game, Will Chamberlain scored 90 in a game for Overbrook High. Tom Gola was the king of the city at LaSalle High School, and at LaSalle College, where he won a national championship in 1954. Gola still holds the NCAA record for most rebounds in a career. Here's Monroe, Earl, top of the key. Monroe drives, shoots, what a play, what a play! What a play by Earl Monroe! And then there's the legendary Hall of Famer, Earl Monroe, who preceded Joe Bryant at Bartram High. He could handle the ball like it was on a string. Monroe became one of the most skilled guards the NBA has ever seen. That clip of the Pearl on MSG Network was just one of many highlights he would have on a nightly basis. He was part of a generation of players who brought the flair of street basketball to the pros, who made it mainstream. He also had maybe the two coolest nicknames in basketball history, Black Jesus and The Pearl. Here's Mo Howard. Back at that time, the men who played on the 76ers and the pros from Philadelphia played in the Baker League. And uh, prior to any of the Baker League games, we had Sunny Hill games. And we were very approachable, right? I mean, heck, everybody in Philadelphia wanted to be, any play basketball anyway, wanted to have at least Earl's spin move, right? You know, I mean, those guys influenced all of us, not just in the basketball part, but, you know, as being part of of our community as well. You know, these guys, as I said, were very approachable. They were very visible and present in our community. So there were a few guys that, you know, we sort of kind of looked up to. But I would have to say, from my era, it was Earl. Pearl Monroe and Joe Bryant grew up in the same neighborhood. And it was a pretty rough neighborhood. There was crime. There were gangs. Joe once got stabbed in the leg with a knife during a fight. But his father, Joe Sr., was tough and protective. And Joe found solace in sports. Football, track, and especially basketball. If you could play on the playground courts of Philadelphia, you could play just about anywhere. It was a lesson Joe's son would learn, too. Because at that time, you have to understand, there was gangs... And there was a lot of uh, negative things going on in the community. And so this was a way for kids to express themselves. As a matter of fact, when I first started covering high school sports in Philadelphia, there were no night games allowed in the public league. Everything had to be on Tuesday afternoon and on uh, Thursday afternoon. And you had to have uh, security. Fans were not allowed. They gradually, they brought the fans come to the game, but it was kind of a difficult era. But then when the athletics started really exploding and people started getting interest, there was a lot more uh, people going to the games. And the Palestra was just the ultimate. 
you you played the plester that was an incredible incredible experience When Joe Bryant was a kid, Earl the Pearl was his hero, his biggest basketball influence, which made Joe different from just about every Philly high school star who had come before him. See, the Pearl was six foot three, and Joe wanted to play just like him. And he could, and he did. Joe put the ball behind his back. He worked on his spin moves. He aspired to be as creative and flashy as the Pearl. There was one big difference, though. Joe wasn't six foot three. He was six foot nine. And six foot nine players didn't do the kinds of things that Joe could do. I like to do stories and do feature stories. And so I went to Bartram uh, and, I, and I saw him play and I was just amazed at the agility and the quickness and the size and the talent and most of all the personality, the great personality. He could just charm anybody with that smile. As a senior in 1972, Joe averaged more than 27 points and 17 rebounds a game. He scored 57 points in one game and had 40 points and 21 rebounds in another. The newspapers in Philly, the Daily News, the Inquirer, the Bulletin, covered him like he played in the NBA already. When Joe was in high school, they played a team called Germantown High School with Mike Sojourner. Germantown was the biggest team I'd ever seen in high school basketball. We called them the Jolly Green Giants. The shortest guy was 6'4". They went 6'4", 6'5", 6'7", 6'9", 7'7", 1". They owned Bartram had Joe and another kid they called Mad Dog, a rebounder. Joe was determined to win that game. And people said, they Bartram can't win. Bartram can't do this. Bartram gets too freelance. It was that old McDonald's hole, packed house. Joe scored over 40 points, took over the game. Took over the game. And that's that same determination that Steely, when he had to be, and I see that more in Kobe. Thompson is getting at something really important here, the difference between Joe and Kobe, between father and son. Joe ratcheted up his competitiveness, his will to win, only sometimes when he absolutely had to. But, of course, this is the quality that Kobe's probably most well-known for. He was at that peak level all the time. I saw that steely kind of attitude that uh, I'm going to be the best. Joe didn't have that all the time, but when he did get it like in that game, that's why he's publicly champion. Because he said, uh-uh, this is mine. I'm going to win this. And he stunned Philadelphia basketball. I mean, he absolutely stunned it. That's how fame worked back then. There was no sports center, no Twitter, no social media scuttlebutt. There was just one newspaper headline after another, proclaiming that Joe Bryant was the next great Philly player. The guys on the playgrounds gave him a nickname based on an old big band lyric. Must be jelly cause Jim don't shake like that. That's who Joe was now, Jelly Bean. He even bragged to a reporter that he ate four pounds of jelly beans a day. Was it true? Didn't matter. It just added to the legend. I knew of Joe Bryant. He was the same high school class as of me. And the only game I really saw was the city championship game that year. And I went down to the Fluster to see it. It was just, it was just so exciting. It was a packed house. 
That's Arn Tellum, a native of West Philadelphia and one of the most powerful sports agents of the last half century. NBA stars Tracy McGrady, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, Derek Rose, Tellum represented all of them during his career. He was also Kobe Bryant's first agent. Tellum and Joe Bryant grew up not far from each other. Tellum had read about Joe in the local papers, had heard about this kid who could play anywhere on the floor, and he just had to see him for himself. When Bartram met St. Thomas More in 1972 for Philly High School Hoops Supremacy, Tellum had moved out of the city by then to Lower Marion Township, but he made sure he was at the Palestra that day for that game. And even though Joe and Bartram lost, Tellum was fascinated by him. I just remember watching Joe. The thing that struck me about Joe was that he was a player that, with his size, that could play for any team. And I'd never really seen that before. Usually the, the tallest guy on the team or one of the biggest guys on the team is not bringing the ball off the court. And what struck me about Joe was just his unbelievable skill level as a player. And for a guy that size, here he was a guy that was actually playing point guard, you know, for his team. Joe was such a brilliant high school player that he was selected to play in the Dapper Dan Round Ball Classic, an all-star game in Pittsburgh that pitted the best prospects from Pennsylvania against high school standouts from the rest of the country. It was the McDonald's All-American game before the McDonald's All-American game, and it was founded and organized by a former school teacher from Western Pennsylvania who had turned himself into a basketball recruiter and promoter, Sonny Vaccaro. We'll hear more about Sonny later in Kobe's story. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, this is Mike Sealski, host and writer of I Am Kobe. This podcast project came out of my work on a related book called The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. If you want to explore other parts of Kobe's story, check out The Rise. It's not just a book version of the podcast. I dive deeper into some of the topics covered in this series and even some that we don't cover at all. Kobe's upbringing, his family, his identity, his effect on his friends and teammates, his journey into the NBA, and his earliest days with the Lakers. The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality is out now. Just head over to theriseofkobebook.com and you can buy it from any of your favorite retailers. That's theriseofkobebook.com. Thanks. Nowadays, high school superstars leave their hometowns for big national college programs all the time. Duke, Kansas, North Carolina, Kentucky. That didn't happen as much in the 1970s. A great player was more likely to stay local, 
which is exactly what Joe wanted to do. And exactly what he did do. He decided to go to LaSalle College. It would be comfortable. His family would be able to see him play all his home games. And the LaSalle Explorers coach, Paul Westhead, had his team play a wide-open style that suited Joe's game. It wasn't quite as open as Bartram's run-and-gun style, but it was close. Here's Westhead. Well, Joe Bryant was a multifaceted basketball player. I mean, he was, you know, uh, in modern terms, he was a 6'10 point guard. Joe's dilemma was uh, when you were 6'10 back in the 70s, no one saw you as a point guard, but, but Joe could handle the ball. Joe was great passer, great shooter. He had vision for the game. So his biggest asset was just give him the ball and leave him alone and he'll create for you. He fought his whole career, I think, not so much with me, but his whole career, people didn't want to give him the ball. They, they wanted to, to position up either in the post or down on the baseline and then hopefully score for you. But he wanted to be a handler. He was a uh, He was a player way ahead of his times. What were some of the negatives, drawbacks, shortcomings he might have had as a player? Yeah, he didn't have a lot of shortcomings. I mean, you know, when when you can score at will, when you can drive and jump over top of people, when you can hit the outside shot. I mean, he he had some drawbacks. I mean, the years I coached Joe at LaSalle, they banned dunking because uh, they were ruining rims and stopping games so the NCAA said no no dunking. Well, Joe had a propensity to dunk the basketball so his shortcoming was he just couldn't resist a good dunk once in a while and and, uh, but you you can't fault him for that. (laughs) What was his personality like? Uh, Joe was about as outgoing and as gregarious as you could find in a basketball player. He was friendly, courteous, uh, engaging, easily put his arm around teammates and, hey, don't worry about that missed shot, you're okay. Uh, maybe next time get me the ball and I'll make the shot for you. So so Joe always had a smile on his face. I, I don't ever remember seeing Joe uh, in an unhappy or unpleasant mode. Joe didn't qualify academically to play as a freshman, so he sat out a year to pull his grades up. In his first college game in the fall of 1973, he established himself immediately as the team's best player. His debut was incredible. He had 19 points and 15 rebounds and made three behind-the-back passes. He did a little bit of everything, and LaSalle won by 50. But that game, the first of a doubleheader at the Palestra, was significant to Joe for another, more lasting reason. Villanova was playing in the doubleheader's nightcap and had a freshman guard named John Cox, who had grown up near Joe's neighborhood. And John Cox had a sister, Pam. Joe had had a crush on Pam when they were younger. And when they said hello to each other again in the Palestra that night, that was that. They got married the following summer as they were entering their junior years of college. Their personalities complemented each other. Joe was fun-loving and carefree. Pam was strong-willed, protective of Joe and her family. She had been raised a devout Catholic. Those polarities would, to a great degree, come to define their son's life. Joe and Pam's plan was to have Joe finish up at LaSalle, then enter the NBA after graduating. He had pretty much proved by now 
that he was the best, most talented player in the Big Five. And some people believed that if Joe stayed in school through his senior year, he would be the top pick in the 1976 NBA draft. Here's writer Julius Thompson again. Joe was like poetry in motion, and he could handle the ball. He, he was before his era. Joe should have been the era now where you could have people, the big guys handle the ball. At that time, you were told, take your big lanky behind, get down on the block, you know, put your back to the basket, catch the ball. But Joe said, uh-uh. Joe was a rebel. Joe could handle the ball. He could run the offense. He could freelance. He could shoot. Uh, but the only thing Joe didn't like to do, Joe did not like to rebound. He didn't like to get down there and battle the big guys. He wanted to be outside. He wanted to be pretty boy. And everybody used to laugh at Joe being the pretty boy because he he was just, but he was absolutely fantastic to watch. I cannot think of a player today that big and that quick. I, he just came in at a different era. He had been born today. Everybody would have thought, he wow, big man, can handle the ball, can do all kinds of things. But Joe's dad, Joe Bryant Sr., fell and broke a bone in his back, which meant he couldn't work anymore, which meant Joe and Pam's plans had to change. After LaSalle lost in the 1975 NCAA tournament, Joe withdrew from several of his classes and lost interest in the other ones. He got approval from the NBA to enter the draft early. It didn't take much. He had to show that he was what the league called an economic hardship, which was pretty much a rubber stamp. The Golden State Warriors, who had just won their first championship, took Joe with the 14th pick in the first round. He was off to the West Coast. He was going, going, gone. Or so he thought. The Warriors had a problem. They had neglected to tender Joe a contract by the league's September 1st deadline. It was a clerical error, but it was a costly one. They had lost his rights. He could sign with any team he wanted. And he wanted to sign with the Sixers and stay in Philly. So he did. The Sixers had been a pretty good team the year before, and Joe figured he'd come in and play right away. It didn't quite work out that way. Before the season began, the team spent $6 million, a fortune at the time, to sign superstar Julius Irving. And Dr. J's arrival pushed Joe down on the depth chart. And when the season did start, Joe kept shooting, even though he couldn't make any of his shots. He missed 30 of his first 36 shots from the field. In time, Joe got his bearings. He played about 16 minutes a game, averaged seven or eight points a night. Not up to his own expectations, but not bad for a rookie. Here's longtime NBA executive Pat Williams, who was the Sixers general manager at the time. He was multi-talented, very colorful, flamboyant, exciting, free-willed, big. He was a legitimate 6'9", athletic, could do things with the ball that were astounding. He could handle it and he right. could pass it. He could, and he was a showman. I can still see him up and down the court. He could run. He, uh, he was not a consistent shooter. And that's probably what uh, limited him. You know, he could score in, in spurts, but you would never call him a consistent offensive force. So Joe would have moments like that, you know, where he could 
Uh-huh. He could churn up an awful lot of offense. Had a following, you know, Philly kid. Very popular with the Philadelphia fans. Uh, hometown kid. It worked um, in theory. Uh-huh. But um, to have a first-round pick fall into your lap, you know, without without giving up anything because of a clerical mistake, yeah, that was a no-brainer. On Christmas Eve 1975, Joe and Pam bought a house a five-bedroom colonial on Remington Road in Wynwood, a neighborhood in Lower Marion Township, just outside Philadelphia. Joe also bought himself a sports car, a white Datsun 280Z. Everything seemed to be set up perfectly for him. As the clock neared midnight on Wednesday, May 5th, 1976, two Philadelphia police officers were patrolling the area around Fairmount Park West, a huge verdant public park near West Philly. They noticed a car, a white Datsun 280Z, with one of its taillights out. When they approached the car, they saw a familiar face inside, Joe Bryant's. He was with a 21-year-old woman who had been his girlfriend in high school. The combustible nature and context of this situation cannot be overemphasized. Here was Joe, a local celebrity, a young man instantly recognizable to anyone with a passing interest in the city's sports scene, in a car, late at night, with a woman who was not his wife. Here was Philadelphia in the mid-1970s, crime-ridden, gang-laden. The city had experienced a 120% rise in violent crime since the previous decade. Here were two white members of the police department approaching a car driven by a black man. Just a year earlier, a Pulitzer Prize-winning series of investigative articles in the Philadelphia Inquirer had revealed that several cops had been engaged in coercive and illegal interrogation practices that included handcuffing suspects to chairs and beating them with blackjacks, brass knuckles, and lead pipes. Each one of the people in Fairmount Park that night had cause to be on guard. Glands were pumping adrenaline and cortisol. Palms and brows were wet with sweat. Joe got out of the car. The officers asked him for his license and registration. Joe got back in the car, but instead of handing over the documents, he turned the key and sped off, heading south. He didn't even bother to turn the headlights on. The chase lasted three miles until Joe crashed his Datsun into a stop sign, a no parking sign, and finally a wall. He jumped out of the car and tried to run. Officer Robert Lombardi grabbed him. He raised his fist, Lombardi said later, and I struck him. I subdued and handcuffed him. Subdued and handcuffed. It was soft language for a hard encounter. Joe ended up in the hospital with six stitches. Inside the car, police found two vials of cocaine. We did our best to track down a contemporary TV or radio news report about the incident to play for you, but there weren't any out there. It just goes to show you how different the media landscape was back in the mid-1970s. 
Joe was a big deal in Philadelphia, a local hero. This story would have been all over Twitter and social media if they had existed back then. I was able to dig up several newspaper articles from that time, all of which treated the incident like the major news story that it was. Here's how the Philadelphia Inquirer covered it. After a high-speed chase, which ended only after his car struck three parked vehicles and rammed into a wall, 76ers forward Joe Bryant was arrested on a charge of possession of cocaine. Police originally approached the 1972 model Datsun in which he was parked because one taillight was out. Bryant was a Philadelphia basketball star at Bartram High before entering LaSalle, where he led the Big Five in scoring his junior season. Joe was charged with drug possession, reckless driving, and two counts of resisting arrest. At the trial a month later, Joe's attorney, Richie Phillips, had 20 character witnesses testify on his behalf, including several of his teammates. Joe's wife, father, and baby daughter, Sharia, were all there too, as a united front. The judge ruled that the police's search of Joe's car was illegal, and he dismissed the remaining charges. Even though Joe's race had almost certainly played a role in how he was treated by the police, he was afraid that his actions had embarrassed the Sixers. The incident happened during what was already a hectic year for the franchise. Three weeks after Joe's arrest, the Sixers' owner, Irv Kozlov, sold the team. And according to Pat Williams, Joe thought that his mistake had led to Kozlov's decision. And I remember his reaction was that these actions of his had prompted Koz to sell the team. Uh, I remember he took that seriously. That was not the case at all. You know, that sale was in the works and okay. was going to happen. But Joe did uh, feel guilty uh, that it, this might have prompted Cause to sell the team. It was all new stuff. You know, nobody knew anything about drugs then. You never heard anything. Uh, I do remember going to court and speaking on his behalf. <laughs> this is a fine young man with a bright future, and he made a mistake. It'll never happen again. Please don't let anything damage his career here. We need to, uh, you know, keep him on the straight and narrow. We'll keep an eye on him. I, I think that was a wake-up call to him. I think he took it very seriously that he had uh, been caught doing something that uh, was embarrassing to him and to his family. It probably did affect uh, his career and his life. I don't think he ever uh, got near anything like that again. If you think about it, the aftermath of Joe's arrest wasn't all that different from the aftermath of Kobe's arrest for sexual assault all those years later. The charges and alleged crimes were different, of course, Kobe's more severe than Joe's. But just like with Kobe, there was public shock over Joe's incident with the police, disbelief that he could do something so dumb that he could put his career at risk. His actions had threatened his marriage or seemed to anyway, and led to speculation that the scandal would tarnish him forever. For some people, that's certainly still the case with Kobe. The difference was, nothing much about Kobe's career changed once the public interest in the scandal started to fade. The Lakers didn't trade him. 
he didn't decide to play somewhere else, though there were times he considered it. He was a Laker, and he remained a Laker. But even though Joe stayed out of legal trouble from then on, he was never able to establish a specific role with the Sixers or with any other NBA team for the rest of his career. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. The Sixers were a good team. They reached the finals in 1977 and were contenders for years thereafter. And Joe had hoped he'd stay with them for a long time. In August of 1978, Joe and Pam had their third child, a boy. They named him Kobe, after the famous beef of Kobe, Japan. It was part of the name of their favorite restaurant. His middle name was Bean, derived from his father's nickname, Jelly Bean. But Joe never really justified all the hoopla around him in Philadelphia. He was never anything more than a bench player for the Sixers. In 1979, they traded him to one of the NBA's worst teams, the San Diego Clippers, who in turn traded him in 1982 to another of the league's worst teams, the Houston Rockets. That season was so bad for Joe and the team that the Rockets owner offered him a job afterward as a salesman at one of the guy's car franchises. Joe was just 28. He had a wife and three kids. Where was his basketball career headed? As it turned out, he was headed to Italy. A friend of Joe's suggested he go play in Europe. He could make good money there. He could play the way he wanted to play there. He could shoot whenever he wanted. The Italian people would embrace him. They would love him. So he and Pam decided that they and their three kids, Sharia, Shea, and Kobe, would go to Italy. Kobe was five years old. Here he is talking to Jeremy Treatman in 1996, about the move. Uh, I really didn't know what was going on. My parents just told me, you know, this, this is what we're going to do. And at that age, you say, okay, fine, let's go. You know, you just really listen to your parents. Your parents just said, uh, that we have to learn language. That's what my sister did. Joe signed with a basketball club in Rieti, a town on a hilltop an hour north of Rome. It was a much more relaxed style of life than in America. The team played games once a week on Sundays. Kobe and his sisters went to school six days a week but just four hours a day. The family didn't really know anybody there and couldn't communicate clearly with many people at first. The isolation bonded them. It brought them closer together. Over there, we were really by ourselves because we couldn't speak that Italian language. Therefore, I didn't have a lot of friends over there. Um, the friends I had were my two sisters. They were my siblings. I, I went to them if I had trouble but Maybe something in school, I had a problem in school, I'd go to them, they come to me. Just had a very good time together. 
that's what that whole experience and that whole time experience gave me. I like thinking about the past a lot. I like thinking about Italy and all my friends down there. What a long way I came to get to where I'm at now. That, that keeps me going. I think it's always a motivator when you go back to your roots and see where you came from. Italy's a whole nother session. Yeah. <laughs> Leon Douglas was another American playing pro in Italy at the time. Douglas and Joe Bryant had met in high school and then reconnected in Europe. They eventually became teammates in another town, Pistoia, and their families became friendly. My wife and his wife, they participated in things together. Kobe and his sister used to babysit my daughter. And uh, when that was a birthday, they would all be together during the uh, birthday situation. But uh, the families was closed because we was in a situation where it was us against them, more or less. And uh, as far as being two African-American families, we were within this family structure that we sort of looked out for each other. Great, you know, uh, Kobe idolized his father. One reason was his whole basketball game was basically Joe when Joe was young. You know, the way he played in the NBA was similar to the way that his father played when I played with him in Italy. Offensively especially, because uh, during Kobe, uh, I guess third or fourth year when I was watching him, I would always see him do some of the things that his father did, like his jump shot, like his drives, and uh, a lot of the old guys that was in Europe, they all called him a little joke because of some of the things that he did similar to his father. One day, Kobe accompanied his dad on a long bus trip to a game. The two of them sat with Douglas for the ride. That didn't happen often because of uh, the fact that we didn't allow young people to travel with us, especially if it was an overnight game. And this was a day game. And while we was traveling, Joe started talking about his grandparents. And I think one of his grandparents was a minister. And she prophesied that there was going to be someone in the family that was going to change the whole family structure, that was going to uh, do things within the family that had never been done before. And that was going to be uh, a legacy in, its, in itself. And uh, Joe and I was talking. And Joe made this comment, he said, well, he said, I know it's not going to be me because I'm in Europe and uh, looking around, it's hard to figure out who it's going to be. And uh, and Kobe was on the bus and, you know, he said, well, maybe it's him, but Joe was unsure, but he did prophesize, someone had prophesized to him that this person was coming that was going to change the family. Because of the pandemic, I wasn't able to travel to Italy to visit Kobe's old stomping grounds. But what I did do was buy a copy of Un Italiano di Nome Kobe, a book by Italian journalist Andrea Barocci. The title in English means An Italian Named Kobe. Not too many people in the United States have read the book, mostly because it's written in Italian. But I have a longtime family friend who speaks the language, and she translated the whole thing for me. One thing that comes through clearly in the book is the manner in which Joe and Pam raised their kids, Kobe in particular. They disciplined him when it came to certain things, academics being the big one. 
They sent him to private schools while they lived abroad, but they indulged him when it came to basketball. One day when Kobe was nine, Joe brought his son to practice with him, and Kobe got up and started dribbling and shooting at the far end of the court. The coach, Joe's coach, kind of laughed at him and said, stay seated. Kobe's response was four words. Fuck you. Fuck you. When he played organized basketball himself, Kobe shot the ball more frequently than Joe did. He shot it every time he had it. He might make 10 in a row, but the other kids wouldn't exactly be thrilled with it. His grandfather back in the States would mail him videos of basketball pros like Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Michael Jordan. And Kobe would study them with his dad, picking up moves that he would practice himself. Away from basketball, though, Kobe bonded not only with his family, but with some of his peers in Italy, especially with the children of his father's friends and teammates. Maybe the best example was Tamika Catchings, whose father, Harvey, had played with Joe on the Sixers. Tamika, her sister Tausia, and Kobe became fast friends, walking around town squares, sharing slices of pizza, playing soccer together. And as Tamika progressed in her own basketball career, as she went on to win four Olympic gold medals, a WNBA championship, and a WNBA MVP award, she and Kobe stayed in touch. It's crazy to think, and a lot of people will ask, just you know, as far as Kobe goes, a lot of people will ask, what was it like when you were growing up? And I'm like, we were just kids. I don't think either one of us at that point in time would have ever dreamed about the role that we were in and just the opportunity that we had, both of our fathers playing, being in a foreign country. I mean, it's not necessarily the typical life of any child, and definitely not for us. But as time wore on, and you know, my father only played for a year, we moved back to the States. And then after that, he moved back. And I just remember at that point in time, when he got drafted, calling my parents like, this is the Kobe that we were just in Italy with, right? And yeah, it was. So he went to the pros, I went to college. Four years after that, went to the WNBA and the rest is history, lives intertwined. The thing about it, when you look at it, is it's almost like a book. When you see the book and you start filling it with the words and the chapters keep coming, this was gonna be the storybook ending. You close one book, you start a new book. And that's really, for me, that's what I imagine. On Saturday, May 15th, 2021, about a year and a half after Kobe died, he and Tamika were inducted together into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. At the end of the ceremony, Michael Jordan held the hand of Kobe's widow, Vanessa, as he escorted her to the stage to deliver a speech that her husband would have given. If my husband were here tonight, he would have a long list of people to thank that helped inspire him and equip him to be in the Hall of Fame. Family, friends, mentors, the Lakers, teammates, muses, and opponents. This is one of the many hard parts about not having him here. At the risk of leaving anyone out, I can only say thank you. 
To all those who helped him get here, you know who you are, and I thank you on his behalf. It was supposed to be the perfect coda to Kobe's life, to all the choices that Joe and Pam Bryant had made that had led to this moment. It was supposed to be the perfect capstone to the Bryant family's basketball legacy. Instead, it was bittersweet. Kobe was gone, and the people who knew him, who cheered for him, who admired him, all they could do was remember him as he was, remember the journey he had taken that was supposed to lead to that night, to that moment. That journey had begun across an ocean, in another country, in the place where he had first embraced basketball and where basketball embraced him when he first realized what he was born to do. He was so young then, but he carried that understanding and knowledge with him through every stage of his life in a way that is so rare, so impressive, he was able to reach the kind of heights and to be the kind of figure we see only once every few generations. Joe Bryant had been bitter about his career in the NBA. He felt he got a raw deal, that teams should have recognized his talent and given him more of an opportunity to put it on display. And he brought this up to his son throughout Kobe's early life. That was fuel to feed Kobe's fire. He wanted to restore his father's reputation, his good name within basketball. He would do what Joe hadn't done. He would bring it every practice, every game, every day, every night. Kobe was determined to be the player that his father should have been. In the next episode, Kobe returns stateside and begins to conceive of what he wants to do with his life. And I'm going to tell you the story of how he learned what he needed to do to get there. Who was saying that? He's like, uh, yeah, you guys are not going to win. I'm like, yeah, right. You want bet? Like, you're going to this high school, you're not going to win. It's like such a big deal, I guess. Like, put your money with your mouth in. That's next week on I Am Kobe. I Am Kobe is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by me, Mike Sealski. It's produced by Jacob Bronstein and directed by Mark Francis. Story editing by Jacob Bronstein with editorial direction from Scott Waxman. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. Stephen Tompkins is our production assistant. Our theme music is Create Yourself by Grover Brown, featuring Justin Starling. Find Create Yourself wherever you stream music. Music supervisor is Scott Velasquez for Freesound Sync. Executive producers are Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Join the conversation about I Am Kobe on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, it's at Diversion Pods. Thanks to Oren Rosenbaum, Susan Canavan, and Jeremy Treatman. Hey, look, I rise before the sun. They don't understand when I say the grind is fun. Never clock out even when my work is done. If they trying to block me, I might hurt someone. Through the blood, sweat, and tears, we persevere. Stay killing it. Let it keep the hearses near. If they don't believe in themselves, they revert to fear. Now the champ is here, so I'm telling them, that's my ambition. The reason why my work's so damn different. To the negatives, I can't listen. See me at the top, you can't listen. 
for real. I'm a mold the clay like cashes. See, I pay my dues plus taxes. Gotta work ethic and grind ahead of its time. If someone say that they made you, tell them you create yourself. I'm the best you finna watch us, boy. It's about that time. You gotta stay packed in. Break by break, we create ourselves. Watch me, watch me, create myself. Wasn't given, it was made. The future, anytime I could change. Better tell them that I made it back home. As I walk through the halls of the fame, I came from the valley of the shadow of death. Waiting for a silver spoon, don't hold your breath. Same town, same dream, but I did it with less. I know who I'm meant to be, so there's nothing to guess. Yeah, there's nothing to guess. It's our time, tell them we up next. We don't got any regrets. I did it with my two hands and we never forget. That's my ambition. The reason why my work's so damn different. To the negatives, I can listen. See me at the top, you can listen. For real. Rebuild, reshape. Give me your all, you got to risk take. Do it now and I'm saying why wait. If someone say that they made you, tell them you create yourself. I'm the best you finna watch us, boy. It's about that time You gotta stay packed in Break by break We create ourselves Watch me Watch me Create myself Shack clock Time's up Create yourself Lay nice Go hard Create yourself Gotta learn from the great minds No, we ain't lying Tell them that it's game time Three six five. We don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play—from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field, whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet Three Six Five. Twenty-one plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call one eight hundred Gambler. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.